Okay, hi, good evening, everybody. Thank you, uh, thank you to everybody for coming. I want to thank, as always, uh, the Adelaide Committee, chaired by Dr. Lowe, for uh, coordinating this special event and all the special events that go on um, throughout the year. And particularly, want to give a special thank you to Sophia Lewis, who is unfortunately not here tonight. Uh, Sophia is a new member of the committee and really coordinated this event almost on her own with Mr. Foxman. Uh, to make this evening possible. We want to thank our sponsoring families, uh, Dove and Jill Solomon and Daniel and Leora Lowe. Uh, only a couple of weeks ago, we sat at the Seder. And at the Seder, we said, that every, in every generation, they stand up to destroy us. And Hashem saves us. And although we're promised that Hashem will save us from those who stand up against us, that the Jewish people will survive forever. Like all areas of bitachon, all areas where we're supposed to have trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, have trust in Hashem, we're also expected to put in our own ishtadlus, our own effort to partner with Hashem, to stand up and to fight against anti-Semitism in all its forms. From the very beginning of our peoplehood, we're taught the importance of standing up for each other. That, in fact, was the critical value, the Midah of Moshe Rabbeinu. And what made Hashem decide to choose him to be the leader of Am Yisrael. That he saw a Jew being attacked by another person, by some other nation, and he stood up and he said, we don't do that here. And he fought and he defended a fellow Jew. We have with us tonight an individual who lived through one of the darkest times our people ever faced and then became one of the leading voices against anti-Semitism in the United States and in the world. Mr. Abraham H. Foxman is world-renowned as a leader in the fight against anti-Semitism, bigotry, and discrimination. Mr. Foxman regularly speaks out on issues of global anti-Semitism, the war on terror, church-state issues, religious intolerance, and issues relating to the Holocaust and Israel. He's a passionate supporter of the state of Israel and a voice for peace in the Middle East. Mr. Foxman is the National Director Emeritus of the Anti-Defamation League. He retired from the ADL in 2015, having served a total of 50 years with the organization, including serving as National Director from 1987 through 2015. Upon retirement from the ADL, Mr. Foxman served as Vice Chairman of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust in New York City, visiting lecturer at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Affairs, and non-resident research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. Mr. Foxman is co-author of Viral Hate and the author of Jews and Money, the Story of a Stereotype, The Deadliest Lies, The Israel Lobby, and The Myth of Jewish Control, and Never Again, The Threat of New Anti-Semitism. During his long career, Mr. Foxman had direct consultations with world leaders across the globe and with Palestinian leaders on problems of ethnic hatred, violence, terrorism, and promoting democracy. He had multiple audiences with Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and Pope Francis, and has conferred with the U.S. presidents from Ronald Reagan to Barack Obama, as well as with members of Congress. Born in Poland in 1940, Mr. Foxman was saved from the Holocaust by his Polish Catholic nursemaid, who baptized and raised him as a Catholic during the war years. His parents survived the war, but 14 members of his family were lost. He arrived in America in 1950 with his parents, a graduate of the Yeshiva of Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York. He has a BA in political science from the City College of, City, 
of the City University of New York, graduating with honors in history. He was a JD degree from New York University School of Law, and the graduate work in advanced Judaic studies at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and in international economics at the New School of Social Research. In terms of the schedule for tonight, first of all, one thing just to know, after the event is over, there'll be Marif downstairs in the base measures. Uh, Mr. Foxman is going to provide a brief update on the state of anti-Semitism in the United States and in the world. At that time, when he's done, we'll then continue the conversation together with questions and answers, opportunities to hear questions that I had submitted from numerous members of the community and questions that you'll be able to ask tonight as well. We'll get to as many as we can. So without further ado, I introduce Mr. Abraham. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, um, it's a new experience for me. I haven't been in front of a live audience in over two years. <laughs> you look better than Zoom. <laughs> um, the subject, previous triumphs and current realities, I guess, Rabbi, could be summed up in the phrase from the Haggadah that you, that you indicated. It covers it all. Bechal dor vador. Talk about anti-Semitism. It's bechal dor vador. And bechal dor vador, there was a triumph. The help of the Rabbeinu Shalelem, with the help of all kinds of miracles and things, but I had difficulty talking about previous triumphs when we talk about anti-Semitism. I guess uh, Pesach is a triumph, Purim is a triumph, Israel is a triumph, but the triumph is survival. I guess, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. It's Kiyum and Hemshech. Several years ago, I was invited to a symposium in the White Plantation to discuss the subject of why or whether will the Jewish civilization survive the year 2025. And the scholars preparing the symposium studied Spangler, Toynbee, the historians of history, to see if they can distill what is the difference? Why was it that the Roman civilization, the Greek civilization, the Inca civilization perished? And uh, we, the Jewish people, the Jewish civilization did not. And what is the secret of that survival? And what does it tell us about the future? And interesting, what they distilled out of studying history as all the historians of history did, was that the one significant difference between all the other civilizations and our civilization, the Jewish civilization was, that whenever there was a defeat, when the Romans were defeated, 
after the defeat, they got up and they said, Feh, I don't want to be a Roman. The Greeks were defeated. They got up and they took a look around. They said, oh, not for me. The Incas, we don't know. To this day, we still don't know what happened to that civilization. But what was found and distilled in our, in our people, in our values, that was historically, after every tragedy, whether it was destruction of the first temple, the second temple, and if you will, miracle of all miracles after the Shoah, the Jews got up, brushed themselves up, and said, I want to continue to want to be a Jew. And so when we talk about previous triumphs, the answer is complicated yet very simple. As long as we committed and said to ourselves and to each other and to the Rabbeinu Shalalem, we want to continue to be Jews. That's, if you will, the triumph over anti-Semitism. I will try to deal, you know, in 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> to deal with the global subject of anti-Semitism. I don't know, but I, so I, I will pose questions to myself, try to answer it very briefly, and then we'll go wherever you want. Um, the current reality of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is a yes. It was, it is, and it will be. It is a disease without an antidote, without a vaccine. And therefore, it will be with us. <laughs> we joke about it, and we say, um, you know, they tried to destroy us. We survived, now let's eat. In a way, you can, you can look at all of Jewish history basically in that concept. So what is it? Somebody we were talking earlier before, what is it? If you ask Siri, Siri will tell you it's a noun, hostility, or prejudice against the Jews. Rabbi Moses Rosen, the chief rabbi of Romania, once said to me, Abe, hey, the waste, it's, it's hating the Jews more than is absolutely necessary. But there is a definition. It's called the IRA definition. Um, do every, you raise your hands if you know what the IRA definition of anti-Semitism is. One, two, all right, then I, then I will share it with you in more detail. Um, there has always been this issue, what is it? How do you define it? Now, the truth is, for those of us who, who dealt with it and struggled with it, we knew defining it won't resolve it, <laughs> won't bring the Shua, won't bring the Yeshua. But still, if we can get a definition that decent people could agree upon, then at least it will stop a great deal of argument and debate. Is it? Isn't it? What is it? How serious is it? So about 15 years ago, a group of scholars, politicians, um, diplomats got together on various forums uh, to see if they can develop a definition acceptable to most people on what anti-Semitism is. I will read it to you in a moment. It's not that, that long. Uh, the fact is that by today, there are about 40 countries in the world that have accepted it. The EU actually 
acted on it. It's again, it's not legislation. It doesn't have legal force, but it's a definition which has, has taken on a consensus again in civilized society. 35, 40 countries, including the United States. In the United States itself, 25 states have specifically and actually adopted it. Uh, there are about 400 universities. There are all kinds of global institutions that have accepted this definition so that we don't have to argue about is it or isn't it. But nothing comes that simple. Again, a definition by itself um, needs Rashi. So they added Rashi and even Unculus to it at the same time. What is it? When I read it, you know, they added 13 Musa has, you know, examples. And it's on the issue of the examples that debate continues. That means almost everybody's, almost everybody, you know, I'm talking about the civilized world, is ready to accept the definition, except when it comes to the six examples, there are 13 examples, six of them dealing with Israel. And that's the issue where if you're going to read now that these people didn't want it adopted in this university, etc. It's all about the examples relating to Israel. So the definition reads, anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jews or non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Okay, okay. I will read you the Israel examples because that continues to be uh, an issue of debate and problems and ironically within the Jewish community. So elements of the Jewish community who are not that comfortable with Israel, with Israel's policies, are stand opposed to this definition because of the examples. Accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than to the interests of their own nations. Denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination, example, by claiming that the existence of the State of Israel is a racist endeavor. Applying double standards by requiring of it a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Using the symbols and, and images associated with classic anti-Semitism, i.e. claims of Jews killing Jesus or blood libel to characterize Israel or Israelis. Drawing comparisons of contemporary Israel policy to that of the Nazis. Holding Jews collectively responsible for actions of the state of Israel. So basically, it's a, if you include these examples, it's a very, very broad definition, including everything that we know when it comes to BDS, anti-Zionism, it's all included. And that will explain to you every time you read that in such and such institution, there are Jews or, or others who are opposed to definition of, of anti-Semitism, and it's because of the references of including attacks on Israel as anti-Semitism. When did it all begin? When did this, <laughs> this bracha, this klala, this sura begin? Some say it's with Pharaoh in Egypt, maybe. Um, I, I would take it at the beginning that modern day Christianity, serious Christianity, Western civilization Christianity began with the birth of Christianity. 
2,000 years ago. And it's deep, deep in Western civilization. And it's all about the issue of deicide. And again, most of us from the world that we come from, we don't study the New Testament. We don't, okay, but, but you need to be, understand and be aware. The Romans killed Jesus, who was Jewish. 150, they did it, they controlled the land, they controlled the politics, they controlled the military, they controlled everything, they controlled the Jews. And they politically decided that he was a threat to the empire, and they killed him. 150 years later, the Roman emperor decides to convert to Christianity. And they wake up with a serious problem. Here, here the Roman empire becomes Christian, and it was the Christians who killed their Lord. And that's the beginning of Western modern anti-Semitism. And so no, they didn't kill it, the Jews killed them. And that's when deicide began, that's when deicide started, that's when it became serious, that's when it became part of the religion and the culture and the environment and everything else. Um, there is a fascinating book, if you have time, it's called Constantine's Sword, written by a uh, Catholic priest, former Catholic priest, and it basically says it the way it is. But that's not the way it's out there. Somebody in our conversation beforehand said, why? Why? I guess if we knew, <laughs> we would eliminate it. Um, and the why um, depends who you ask. Mark Twain, Mark Twain in the 1880s, got in trouble in this country, uh, he got in debt, and so he went on a speaking tour through Europe. And wherever he went, he found anti-Semitism. He returned to America, wrote an essay called Concerning the Jews, and became mamish an anti-anti-Semitism advocate. Wherever he went, the rest of his life, he found opportunities to speak out against anti-Semitism. He wrote in the essay that, as I said, wherever he went, he found anti-Semitism. Rich people, poor people, smart people, stupid people, religious people, atheists. It did not matter what they were, they were anti-Semitic. And then he tried to give the answer to why. And he wrote an answer why. In his opinion, it was the, because of the success of the Jews. Because the Jews are successful, there is jealousy, and therefore there is anti-Semitism. Um, after Glasnost, and um, I'll go back. We in the ADL, oh, about 35 years ago, began taking an inventory of anti-Semitism. All of a sudden, it was growing. All of a sudden, we were reporting more and more incidents. And so we started an inventory. And after the first year of, of going public with the inventory, we put together a group of scholars, politicians, educators around the table to say, favos, why? And everybody around the table had an idea. And at one point, um, this, this gentleman, this scholar said, well, you know, it's because the Jews succeed. Uh, so I remember I was a young Shagert, so I said, Archie, if I go home and tell my kids to be number two and number three, you're going to take care of anti-Semitism? Everybody laughed, but it's not funny. 
I went after Glasnost and the Perestroika when the Soviet Union fell. I was invited to address uh, the City Council of Moscow on anti-Semitism. And after I finished giving my presentation, one of the members of the City Council raised his hand and he said, Tavares Foxman, you didn't answer the question. I said, well, I tried to answer. No, he says, you didn't answer the question. He says, I'll tell you why there's anti-Semitism. When I was a young member of the Communist Party, the Komsomol, the best members in the young Komsomol were Jews. Then I became a member of the Communist Party, and you know, the best Communist members were Jews. And now in the city council, the best members of the city council are Jews. So you know why there's anti-Semitism? Because they excel, but only for themselves. They only care about their own and nobody else. And that's why there's anti-Semitism. Um, interestingly enough, um, somewhere as I read, uh, from, from Orthodox traditional sources, um, that the reason, the reason that there's anti-Semitism is because the Jews gave the world the law. <laughs> there were six laws of Noah, which wasn't enough for the Jews. The Jews gave them ten, and they couldn't do this, and they couldn't that, and this is, they're still angering getting back at us. What are the perennial themes? What are the issues? Well, in Western civilization, the biggest issue, uh, of course, is deicide. It's still there. Even with the Vatican, even with the forgiveness, it's still there. Um, the most popular in popular culture is money the money issue, and it's a question whether Jews want power to have money or want money to have power. You can play it any way you want. It goes back to 30 pieces of silver in the Jesus story, and it's been reinforced, and I'll tell you, it's the Shylock, it's Jewing down, it's throwing pennies, it's the Benjamins, and it's even Mr. Trump said, you, you don't support us, support me because you can't buy me. It's all over. It's all over out there, sometimes even benign, but, it, but it's there. And power to control, <clears throat> and the question of, of loyalty. Um, the question of loyalty, and it was before Israel. The Jews are not, again, going back to this question. It's not a question of whether being loyal to a country or to a prince or a nobleman. Jews are loyal first to themselves and, and nobody else. More recently was added the issue of Israel and Zionism. Uh, again, it, all, it, it plays on all those themes, but it gives a platform of legitimacy. I, I would say to a certain extent, um, Israel has become the Jew amongst the nations. I don't have to tell you what Zionism believed, that if we become a normal national nationality with our country, with our land, anti-Semitism will go away. Well, to a certain extent, it was impacted, but, but now, more recently, it's provided a legitimate platform for anti-Semites. That means I love Jews, I like Jews, I just don't like Zionists, or I don't like Israelis or, or Zionists. And to an extent, as I say, um, Israel has become the Jew <clears throat> in the nations, is that every country in the world can determine and decide its capital, except the Jewish state. Every country in the world, look at, look at the world coming around on Ukraine and understanding that Ukraine has the right to defend itself when attacked. Do I have to remind you the arguments and debates whether Israel has a right to defend itself? So to, to an extent, 
on the international community, um, the anti-Semitism has uh, metastasized um, into anti-Israel or using anti-Israel. If you will, the success, if you look at why the success of anti-Semitism is that it serves all kinds of masters and interests. As Twain pointed out, serves the religious and the irreligious. It serves the fascists and the communists. It metastasizes throughout geography, country, regime. It really doesn't matter. It finds its roots always in, in, to serve a, a different master. Major changes um, are maybe not as major as we'd like, is, is, the, is the Catholic Christian world. The Vatican publicly declaring that Jews are not responsible is the most dramatic change in historic anti-Semitism. Now, the trouble is it doesn't filter down that quickly. Um, and so when we talk about the U.S. in a couple of minutes, you'll see that even in this country where there's a lot of coverage and, and going on, etc., it, it, it still persists. And that's been replaced by radical Islam. So Islam has grown. When I was in the ADL, when I was still at the ADL, we did a survey of anti-Semitism in 100 countries in the world, with the exception of Pakistan. Because even in Pakistan, we couldn't figure out how to ask questions without getting the people asking the questions in trouble. End result, 25% of the adult population over 18 in the world is infected with serious anti-Semitism. One out of four. That's pretty serious. Now, it doesn't mean they're out there thinking what they're going to do to the Jew tomorrow, but the infection is there. 30, over 30 percent believe we too much influence in, in money and in international um, and in journalism, etc. Um, and that we cannot be trusted is also in the vicinity of 30 and 40,000, uh, 30 and 40 percent. Ironically, in the Arab and North African continent, it's 80 to 90 percent. And if you want to better understand Europe, Europe, which has never cathar hasn't catharsized out its anti-Semitism of, of the 30s and 40s, now has a conveyor belt of living human beings coming from the Arab countries and North Africa seriously, seriously infected with anti-Semitism. Okay, um, U.S. Again, we were talking before we started, um, is it better or is it worse? Um, it's both better and worse. Um, first, um, the United States is unique in the history of the Jewish people when it comes to anti-Semitism. But at the same time, the United States is not immune from anti-Semitism. In all the years that I was at the ADL, and we issued reports annually, polls, numbers, nobody took them seriously. For good reason. Life was wonderful. Remember, in the United States, 
For over a hundred years, no Jew lost his life because he was Jewish. That's pretty, pretty extraordinary. The last time before recent times that a Jew was killed because he was a Jew was Leo Frank in Atlanta in a lynching in 1913. And for over a hundred years, the numbers were high. We issued polling numbers which said 30% of the American people still believe Jews killed Jesus. 35% of the American people still believe we control beyond what we should, etc. Classic, stereotypic, serious anti-Semitic. But, but, till Pittsburgh, Poway, Jersey City, and almost Fasso Texas, no Jew died in this country because he was a Jew. And somebody will tell me, but Mayor Kahana was killed. That's the Middle East playing here. That was, that was a different situation. And even the, the young yeshiva Bachar was killed under Brooklyn. Again, that was related to the Middle East conflict, not to basic American anti-Semitism. So all of a sudden, wow. All of a sudden, what was latent, and it was latent in this country, came forward. I'll, I'll talk about it in a few minutes why. Um, but we, we were able, the we is the organized Jewish community, whether it's the ADL, the American Jewish Community, American Jewish Congress, the CSC, all the organizations who were established when they came to America and realized that there is anti-Semitism, even in the Golden of Medina, set up structures, developed a, a, a policy, a strategy, a containment policy, to make sure that it's beneath the surface and latent. And it worked. It worked for about a hundred years. It, and what was it? It was a consensus of civility. It was using the media to expose, to shame. Um, it was litigation. It was legislation. It was coalitions. It was standing with all these things, not one at a time, but in, in, in together, built a firewall which kept the anti-Semites, which were large in number, but below the surface, because they knew that in this country, unlike another, other countries in Europe, there was a consequence. That in Europe, if you were an anti-Semite, you, you, you got away with it. In this country, without legislation, really, because I, before I came to the ADL, the ADL tried to find a group libel statute constitutional, and we couldn't. We could not develop a, a law which would hold anti-Semitism uh, illegal. So in this country, we have this fascinating situation that the, the law, the law, you have the right to be a bigot and an anti-Semite. Okay? In Europe, you don't, and the anti-Semitism works, but here till recently, the Constitution, the First Amendment said you can be a bigot. But what we had developed in this society is a consequence, not perfect. But if you were an anti-Semite and you were in politics, maybe you got elected once, chances are you wouldn't get elected twice. If you were in commerce, if you were a, a Mel Gibson, society acted out against you to put it down and you didn't succeed. Now, that's changed. Um, why did it change? First and foremost, this. 
If you're looking for the one major element in the change of the acceptability, um, the, basically the acceptability of anti-Semitism, it's, it's this. I remember not too many years ago schlepping to Palo Alto, visiting with the geniuses, and saying to them, you know, thank you. Thank you for bringing us information and knowledge and communications, but no thank you for the unintended consequences. Because what you've developed and what you've set into place is a superhighway for bigotry, for anti-Semitism. And their answer was then very, very simple, uh, which was algorithms. Yechreis, I didn't know what it was. They knew what it was. But their answer was algorithms. I'm sorry, we didn't mean it. We didn't want it. Well, we now, they know exactly. They play the algorithms. They push the algorithms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But today, I was, um, when the ADL uh, celebrated or commemorated 100 years of its existence, people asked me, can you name one thing that the ADL did that had the greatest impact on anti-Semitism or prejudice? And the truth is, it wasn't that easy, but when you have to, you find it. So I found it, and I wasn't there when they did it. Again, based on our system of government and society and everything else, the Ku Klux Klan in its heyday was not only in the South. It was in Madison Square Garden. It was in Philadelphia. It was everywhere. And the ADL, 50 years, more than 50 years ago, uh, drafted legislation called the Anti-Mask Law, which basically said, you want to be a bigot? Gesundheit. hate. But you have to take responsibility for your bigotry. That means, so all these bigots during the day were doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, firemen, etc. At night, they'd cover their identity with a hood, and they'd burn churches and synagogues and people. And the anti-mask law basically said, you want to be a bigot? Take responsibility for your bigotry. And it was the one single legislative act that, that, that destroyed uh, the Klan. Fast forward 50 years later, this puts the mask back on the bigot. It has already destroyed privacy. It's in the process of destroying civility. Okay, um, why do you feel it today more than you've ever felt it before? Well, one thing that I said was, you know, when you witness Jews being killed for being Jews, wow. That's, that's part of history that we never had here. The other thing is, um, ironically, uh, it's news. And, I, you know, I can catch all I want. We, as I said, we issued reports every year. We said how serious it was. The media didn't listen, and Jews didn't listen. Then the political environment changed. And I know here it's, we, get, we can get a little bit tricky. Um, but when, when leadership can break all taboos, then the taboos of civility and what's right and wrong uh, is, is destroyed. And, you know, I know we get into this Trump, Trumpism. Trump did not create the 200 neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. 
They were there. But they were also there understanding that there may be consequences for them if they surface. Maybe their job, maybe their kids. Once you destroy all the taboos, they felt this was a different time in America. They felt, hooray, I can now do and say what I want. That's a major significant change. And um, again, um, I would say if I, if I sat face to face to Donald Trump today, I would say to him, the worst thing you did to us is to destroy truth. Anti-Semitism and bigotry, but anti-Semitism is the big lie. The antidote to the big lie, in addition to Rebbeinu Shalalem and our faith, is the truth. When you destroy the truth, you destroy the one vehicle we have to counter, challenge, defeat the lie of anti-Semitism. So... Um, where do we go in the future? We need to, we need to rebuild uh, that firewall. We need to rebuild that containment. And, I'm, t- and I, I'm not sure I know. I was just in Washington this week, and we talked about truth. How do you rebuild truth? I don't know. I don't know. But truth is the most essential element for us to defeat the big lie of anti-Semitism. And it's gone. It wasn't done because of us, but the consequences for us are greater. So we have to rebuild a firewall. We have to figure out what in this society of social media, how, how to deal with it. We have to find a balance between civility and First Amendment freedom. We did it, we struggled after 9-11 to find a balance between um, security and civil liberties. It's not perfect. But we learned, we gave up some of our liberties to save, you know, to save lives. And I think we need to, we need to engage in finding this balance. I would say to the Jewish community, sadly, priority today, security, security, security. Uh, again, we preach security. <laughs> In the ADL, in my years, in for years, nobody listens. It's serious. It'll take a while. And I guess the other, the other thing is to go back to the white plantation and the secret of Jewish survival, and that is uh, to be proud. To me, to me, the saddest, most painful statistic that I'm reading is that Jews hide their Jewishness. They hide their Jewish identity. Um, and it, it's less, it's just so a survey went from 25% from a couple of years ago to 50%. And that's a victory to the anti-Semites we cannot allow and permit. So I'm preaching to the converted here. I don't have to tell you, you should have pride in your Yiddishkeit and who you are and what you are. Um, but it's all around you. It's all around you. And God forbid, that's the greatest victory the anti-Semites can have if Jews, God forbid, no longer want to be Jews. Thank you.
Okay. It's not just a big stage, I don't want to. Okay. Um, said a lot, Mr. Faxman, so I don't know. I'm going to start in one place, but you'll tell me we'll, 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 we'll move around. Um, as you mentioned, um, anti-Zionism, certainly on college campuses, continues to rage. Just the other day, the Harvard Crimson came out with their statement fully supporting BDS and encouraging everyone else to do so. Um, I wonder how you see this process continuing to unfold on campuses in the United States, and what is the best way for the Jewish community to respond to it. I'll add to it that there was an article written just the other day, Barry Weiss, I think, just posted it, uh, where the, I can't remember, the, the, but basically the person responded and asked students on campus, you know, what's going on with the anti-Semitism on your campus? And they said to you, they basically responded, well, they're only going to see the anti-Semitism if you reveal that you're a Jew. If and you reveal that you're a Jew. Right. And there are more and more students who refuse to be, quote, outed yep. Yep. on campus. Okay, so I'll tell you, I was a uh, apicarius about BDS. I thought from the beginning, um, we, the Jewish community, gave it more of a, of a strength and more of a victory than it deserved. And, um, you know, take it all the way... <laughs> Um, I remember meeting with BB, asking him about BDS, and he says, hey, I don't have time to go to the bathroom. They all line up, all these countries, all these business people, they all want to make deals, they all want to have relationship with us, so, you know, don't get too excited. Now, we got too excited for a couple of reasons. We didn't have an issue, Svishanuns, okay? We, you know, they needed something to, to solidify us, um, and, and so, we, we, we really saw this as this great, and again, in truth, no university has stopped its relationship with Israel. When you look on the commercial market, there were two companies. One was Soda, yeah, and there was one more, um, the, 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 the rooming, Airbnb, whatever. Two or three companies, Gornish mit Gornish, okay? And didn't go anywhere, didn't accomplish anything. And again, look at universities. No university changed its relationship, canceled its this or that, or this or that. So why are we concerned? Because while it did not change, if you will, policy or relationships, it acts as a very serious intimidator. So even look at Harvard, okay? Um, there are four people who made that decision, okay? Um, and all of a sudden, ooh, Harvard, ask the kids, Gornish, they don't know what you're talking about. But it intimidates. I, I, saw, um, I, I saw somebody last week in Boston who's teaching at Harvard, an Israeli, serious Israeli, who says to me, you know what the Tzara is? The, the, um, the Israeli ambassador came to the University of Harvard to speak to faculty and they didn't advertise, so only two faculty members came. The universities are intimidated by not having a problem, not having you know, demonstrations, etc. And that's, that's their victory. The other victory is the Jewish kids, who also want to study, have a good time, whatever. Not all of them want to be ambassadors. Not all of them want to be fighters. So yeah, it's happening more on campus. Because kids are hesitating 
you know, you will not see today on a college campus uh, Stu Coca-Cola t-shirts or a Sahal t-shirt. You won't see it. Uh, I was in Brandeis. Maybe Brandeis is not a good example, but I saw tzitzis and I saw yamlakes all over, and it was a machaya. Now, I, you know, I don't know to what extent it is. There's also something else that you need to be aware of, which is good news and bad news. There were always swastikas in Emory. Okay? We, we, there were swastikas everywhere. But you didn't read about it. Now a swastika in Emory is a global event. And so it also magnifies it. So my concern is we need to equip, and again, wait, if you look at the college campus, because of birthright and because of all these things, there are coalitions, pro-Israel coalitions on campus. Used to have Hillel, okay? Then you had Hillel and Chabad. Today on the campus, you have five, eight, 10, 12 organizations. Stand with me, stand behind me, stand around me. Kenyirbu. <laughs> They're there, okay? So, it, it, so that's another plus we don't talk about. There were more kids on campus today who have visited Israel than you can count or imagine because of birthright. Now, again, they want to have fun. They, want to, they, don't want, they don't all want to be fighters. But I, from what I see is we've equipped the kids with, with whatever they need, with the knowledge, with the education. We're now moving to educate the kids in the day schools so they then come on college campus saying, ooh. So yeah, it's an issue. I, we, I worry about it more if Israel is not a, doesn't get a positive image on the campus than the non-Jewish kids. 20 years from now, when they become councilmen, senators, place, whatever they become, their memory and their image of Israel will come out of that instantaneous second apartheid um, bad with minorities, etc., etc. That's that we need to worry about because uh, again, there was a study now. I I grew up at a time before 67 and 73, where American Jews couldn't care less, except for people who daven three times a day. Okay, you know, fine. They prayed to Yerushalayim, we knew Israel, but American Jews didn't. So I know, I grew up with an American Jewry who didn't know, didn't recognize, didn't care. Today's an American Jewry who cares, doesn't always agree. I'd rather they care and argue and disagree. So I, I'm not as worried about the American Jewish community as I'm worried about the impact beyond. And number two, he said, it implies we don't have sufficient evidence to counter their claims. And he quoted Deborah Lipstadt of saying a similar, similar thing, that when we, when we cancel people who deny the Holocaust, we then imply that we don't have sufficient evidence to argue against them. I'm interested to know what you would respond to such an argument, especially in light of movements more recently to talk about disinformation, people trying to say what's true and what's not true. What are your thoughts on something like that? Okay, so when it comes to the issue of Holocaust, um, 
I have different antenna, more sensitive antenna, and uh, where, you know, I have respect for First Amendment, I have respect for freedom of speech, but I just did a tweet, I try not to tweet, um, uh, to, to Mr. Musk, which, where I said, unfettered speech is almost like yelling fire in a crowded theater. Unfettered speech is as danger, almost as dangerous. My second sentence was, Jewish tradition teaches us that life and death is in the power of the tongue. And we say three times a day, okay? So we know that the, you know, the power that it has. Um, but again, Canada is different. I don't know the Canadian laws. Uh, so I don't know to what extent they're first. I, I, in my days at the ADL, I cautioned against legislation against BDS. Um, in the same way that in my years in the ADL, litigation was always the last resort. And, some, and I, I believe that legislation sometimes should be short of the last resort. Because then what you do is you, you make enemies from people who aren't your enemies, who because of the principle on a, become your enemies or antagonists. So I think democracy is precious to us. Very precious. And, 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 and freedom of speech and freedom of expression, again, as long as truth is there, we needed it. We need a credible media because we used to use the media to educate, to shame, to expose. Okay? So um, I would err on the side of no legislation, go to education, which is much longer. But even legislation is arduous. Is, it's also cheap. You know, uh, i tell you, Mycela. When Zionism racism um, was, was voted in the UN, the Jewish community, God bless it, went after governors. Governors should pass resolutions in the state of Idaho that Zionism isn't racism. And most governors said, the Jews want to give it to them. But there were some who said, ich bin Gott in the what, what does the state of New Hampshire have to do with the resolution in the United Nations saying Zionism racism? So this Governor Sununu said, I'm not going to sign it uh, because it's, I, I, I'm not guilty. <clears throat> so sometimes in our zeal, we, we go further than we need to. So I would say, I would be careful with the legislation. I would still begin with saying no, but there may be situations where Europe is totally different. But even then, you have legislation which isn't enforced, doesn't mean anything. It's very cheap for politicians. And you go like this, you want it, you can give it, who cares? But at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily make us friends. What makes Europe different? They don't have the First Amendment. We, um, I, re I remember trying what country it was, I think it was England, came running to oh, Romania, Romania, um, or Hungary. They wanted to stop the stuff on the internet, and they said, well, they can't do it there, but they do it through you, and if you would change the First Amendment, it would protect us. No, okay, no. <laughs> I want to turn now. If there are questions from the audience, we can start and then we'll see what else. Yeah. I've noticed that eight hackers for the other world being non-Jews, the Tank of Israel, and they come back and burn from Israel. Is it possible a birthmark for non-Jews would change the equation a little bit? Look, um... Right. You said you used APAC as the example of taking non-Jews, and... They become very pro Israel. Right. Okay, look, so all Jewish organizations, 
with some exceptions recently, um, have taken non-Jews to Israel. Okay? There is no better quick course, education, etc., emotional. Again, for non-Jews, for non-Jews, they discover Jesus in the Holy Land. Okay? We have taken senators, congressmen, police officers, law whatever, who all of a sudden discovered their religion on Jewish hands. Okay? Absolutely. It works 98% of the time. 2% they go there and they come back and they say, see, I said apartheid, I found this, I found this. Okay, yeah, the answer is it does work. There is a reluctance to go because of politics. Um, I will tell you um, that we made a mistake. You can listen. <laughs> we used to take congressmen to Israel, Democrats and Republicans. They bonded in Israel on our places. Came some Jewish Republicans who we, and put in millions of dollars and said, only Republicans go separately and Democrats go separately. It's a terrible mistake because we're now worried they don't talk to each other. Well, they used to talk to each other because of Israel and the Jews. So yeah, I, I, would, I would love to see it back. Something else that because of politics stopped uh, politics of the left, not of the right, and that is taking law enforcement to Israel. Uh, many Jewish organizations used to take law enforcement officers. And again, law enforcement, because of the situations on the ground, some of them become political, et cetera, et cetera. It was a wonderful experience. Because of the charge that the Israelis are teaching them how to deal with riots in the streets, most Jewish organizations stopped sending Law, or law enforcement doesn't want to go. There's no question. Um, you know, seeing, experiencing, it works. It works. It works with Jews. Allah come of come of non-Jews. So, uh, ADL was for a long time, of course, part of a, an important part of the fight against anti-Semitism. And part of that was being um, an organization that was broadly credible to both sides of the aisle, a broad spectrum of the public. There's been a lot of concern expressed that since your departure, under your successor, the organization has taken a, uh, a more partisan turn, a more hard left turn. Um, as an example, when Whoopi Goldberg made her comments and people, there was outrage, people pointed to the Def, the CRT definition of racism that the ADL adopted, that it's only oppression of people of color uh, as an example of, of the leftist term that is taken. So I'm, I'm expecting no comment, but I'm wondering if you can comment. Look, um, no comment, but, okay. <laughs> um, the ADL still has uh, the gravitas of, of an institution that fights anti-Semitism. What you know, 98% of the American people don't know. So it's still an important instrument in. Um, I have very little to do with the ADL. Um, I will tell you, uh, so if you don't know, to my surprise, my successor this last week, he gave a speech. Um, uh, comparing anti-Zionism to right-wing uh, 
anti-Semitism, stating that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So the Mashiach is always around the corner. Thank you, thank you. I've been very lucky. I've been very privileged. I've had this chus um, to have survived anti-Semitism, um, to have survived anti-Semitism with the help and courage and of a non-Jew who risked her life to save me. So to have this chus in my adult life, to be able to try to make a difference fighting the bad and embracing. Um, so thank you, because I couldn't do it there alone. We couldn't do it there alone. And um, I was very, very lucky and privileged. So thank you. Okay. One of the questions that a few people asked. Oh, go ahead. Would it be fair to say that some of the anti-Semitism that uh, the uh, feel towards us is self-inflicted? Uh, for example, in October 6th, 2020, in the Daily News, it says, here in Bar Park, we don't go by the laws of America. We have our own laws. And this is what Gaim are reading. And whether it's slum lords or in years ago it was Bergman nursing homes, there are uh, basically uh, incidents and, and actions that occur that the Gaim read and, and even in America, which is so liberal, develop an opinion that maybe we can't trust you. Um, you know what? I wish it was true. Uh, the, the, the fact is, I think we should be just and right and proper and decent with values because of, we are Jews, not because the, the Goyim shouldn't hate us or like us. The, you know, the truth is, um, I wrote a book on Jews and money, and my first chapter was um, wanting to know why Mr. Feuerstein who after his um, textile mill was burned down in Massachusetts air of Christmas uh, with a loss of millions of dollars, continued to pay the salaries of all the workers for a year. Why that and not Mr. What's-his-name who sat in prison? What's-his-name? Madoff. So Madoff made the news. Feuerstein didn't make the news. But I have to tell you at the end of the day, if an anti-Semite says to you, you're a dirty Jew, and you're going to show them how clean you are when you laundered last, it's not going to make a difference. So don't get taken in. We should be good and just and fair and decent because that's what the Torah teaches us. That's what Jewish values are. And not because what is going to impact on them. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know how many tzaddikim perish? How many innocents, a million and a half children, didn't have the opportunity to have a, a chet? So don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. It's, it's, be just, be fair, be decent, because that's, that's what we are about, not because of them. You don't support them. 
You have a choice. There are a lot of organizations. If you don't like what they do, what they do, it don't support them. It was uh, basically someone who passed away and, and in a private home. Uh, the funeral home was called in uh, Borough Park, and the body disappeared. And evidently, the suggestions of private park trafficking. And okay, there you go again. Okay, you know what? If if, if that makes did that, I, I don't go there. You know, it happens all over. It happens all over. But Unfortunately, there's... Okay, fine. How can you avoid them when you didn't even know that, that there is such an industry? I can't help you. I can't help you. Okay, fine. I can't help you. I can't help you. Okay. I'll give you two more questions. Question number one, is there anything optimistic? <laughs> Something positive? <laughs> For us to think that as we... Uh, Look, don't give me here. We haven't said it, don't But I'm saying a, a, a positive message in terms of what a lot of people, uh, when I was asking people for questions, said, what can we do? What can, what can a regular person, what can a regular person do? All right. So, so number one, Golden Meir once said, Jews don't have the luxury to be pessimists. Okay. Um, personally, I don't, I've been an optimist all my life. I remember, um, I don't remember his name, um, a, a Jewish millionaire used to get hate mail. He once met, met me and, and said to me, Abe, how can you smile after all the things that you see every day? And I said, because, um, I guess go back to my father, Oliver Shalom. I asked my father, and when I was old enough to begin to understand what I had survived. And I said, Tatashi, why are you teaching me faith? Why are you sending me to yeshiva? And he said to me, because what happened was not the work of God, it was the work of man. God gave man his choice. And my father left a manuscript called In the Shadow of Death, in which he wrote about the miracles that he saw. He saw manifestations of the Rabbeinu Shalalem, and he spelled out several occasions. So, uh, <laughs> how can you not be an optimist after we lost six million, we turned around and we, we set up a Jewish independent sovereign state with Yerushalayim in our lifetime? Do I need more to be optimistic? When I take a look around, with all the enemies, with all the challenges, with all the internal mishigas. Wow. Wow. Now, so it's a question what you look for. You know, you want to look about, uh, you'll find it. Um, I, to me, the Hamshach and Kiyam is dependent on us and not on them. And as long as I know, as I've been taught, that I'm, the Hamshach of Am Yisrael <laughs> exists on a Maaser, We've never been a, a huge, it's always been the tenth. And as long as there's a tenth that cares and will continue to care, I'm an optimist. You're part of that tenth, okay? So, I, of course, I'm an optimist. And I sent my kids to yeshiva, and I sent my grandchildren to yeshiva because I believe in the Kiyam and the Hemshech. And as long as we do, we can, we can be optimists. But once we lose, once we lose the faith to take, and then we're in trouble. So I don't, I don't see it. I see ignorance. I see a lot of ignorance. 
And, and there we can, we, can, we can change it. But I, I don't see Hasra Halila, the Jewish people, you know, throwing off the Yiddish guy. I don't. I can understand, you know, putting on a baseball hat instead of a keeper because you've got to be smart too. You should have security, even if it's a police car without a policeman. Okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. We need to be smart, but God forbid, wow, what we've lived through, what we have, we should be proud, and we should have faith, and we should be positive. Thank you. You have one more? <laughs> I'll leave you with a question. No. He's had a question, Nebuch. <laughs> I've, uh, uh, of course, thank you for being here. You've had a long, amazing career. Uh, they don't have to be famous, but tell us about three people that you feel that you've met that have had the most impact, or have had a lot of impact for the benefit of the Jewish people. Wow. Okay. Um, it's a good question. Um, without deep, long thought. Um, Bush won. Bush won um, was not so good on Israel. I have a, he like, used to like, like to write letters. And so I have a lot of letters where we disagree. But Bush won should be credited with saving more Jews than any other president in the history of the United States. Soviet Jewry. Don't forget. Don't forget that we, most of you don't remember, <laughs> but um, there was a, a um, there was a um, refusenik seder in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow uh, with Secretary Schultz. Do you know what it means in the Soviet Union? In the Soviet Union. For the Secretary of State of the United States, with the blessing of the President, to have a Seder and invite here now, oh, look at this, the second gentleman had a Pesach Seder, whoop-de-doo, okay, wonderful, okay, all right, nice, nice. But in Moscow, in Soviet. So when you look at the history of what Bush one did on Soviet jury, on Ethiopian jury, it's a long story, I can't tell you, but you know, what, what he did, what his people did, the decisions, the risks they took on Syrian jury. So from, from the perspective of rescue of, of, of Jews, you know, to me, Atzadik Shabit Sadikim, who didn't get his credit. Um, it's, it's tough. Uh, listen, to me, I, when I look at you, I, look, I, I see Sharon. You know, Arik to me, was, you know, my image of a major Jewish general, you know, with, with, with guts, with strength, with whatever. So, I, but that's based on, on, on relationships. Um, I'll now stop it too, because then you get into trouble. <laughs> Can I ask you one last question? Sure. There's a beautiful song written by Eddie Rottenberg. Yeah. Right? The Man from Vilna. Yeah. Right. The story of of the of the soldier who picked up the little boy in Vilna and danced with him on Simple Star Night. And you had a, an opportunity, I think I'm right, right, to, to meet that soldier again many, many years later. 
Okay, yeah. The story is, although in the song there, there's a girl. I don't, there wasn't a girl, but okay. Um, all right, so in three minutes, four minutes, here's the story. Um, as you know, as you heard, I was raised as a Catholic, baptized. Um, in Poland, in Poland it was very serious. Unlike in France or Italy, if you save Jews, you're going to patch or whatever. In Poland, if you were caught saving a Jew, the first bullet would be for the Jew, the second bullet would be for the person. So my nanny, uh, who at the end, we had, we had a custody battle um, in court to try to get rid of my parents. Uh, she kidnapped me, be all that. She risked her life every single day for four years, um, especially because I was, I was circumcised. And if you look at hidden children, 90%, 95% of hidden children were girls because the risk was less. And even boys were saved, hidden, and dressed as girls and raised as girls. So she baptized me after the, I used to go and spit in Jews going on the street. Uh, after the war, I kept crying. They called me a dirty name. They called me Jid. My father, and it's a whole, you know, it's a big story how they survived when they came back and reunited. I was five and a half. My father, Zechrona Levracha, was much wiser than I gave him credit when, when he was my father. <laughs> he only later realized. Um, I used to say my prayers in Latin every night to God, to Borja, before I went to sleep. And I used to kneel and, and say my prayers. When my father appeared on the scene, he um, taught me the Shema and uh, said to me, you don't have to kneel now. And that was fine with me as long as every night before I went to sleep, I prayed to Bosha, Latin, Hebrew, Greek to me. It doesn't matter. I prayed to God. He had the sense and the wisdom. I wore a, a crucifix for my patron saint. He took it off. And he gave me a talit katan. At the age of five, now you don't wear this, you wear this. I had something close to my body, which kept me close to God. The first time he took me to synagogue, and we were living together, my mother, my father, and my nanny, because there were no housing, and this was already when they close to litigation. So my father took me Silchas Torah. He picked, that's the night to take me to take me to shul for the first time. And on the way to shul, I passed the church, I crossed myself, I met a priest, I kissed his hand, we went off to shul. <laughs> now, you can imagine, you can imagine, uh, this was liberated Vilna, uh, 100,000 Jews perished, 3,000 survived, so, you know, the, the joy, but, a Soviet officer in uniform approached my father and said to him in Russian, Onivrei, is he Jewish? My father said, yes. I had blonde hair, believe it or not. <laughs> it, it helped. Um, and my father said, yes. And the officer said, I traveled thousands of kilometers and I have not seen a Jewish child. Can I dance with him? And he took me and he danced the office with me. And um, I came home and I got a whack. I told my mother, my nanny mother, I like the Jewish church better. They sing and dance. And I got a come out. 
but then to this song. Um, I once told a story at Yad Vashem to a group of officers. There was a researcher, Fabian, Rabbi Fabian uh, Schoenfeld's daughter, who was, and she approached me and she said, do you know whether that officer is still alive? And I said, you know, I don't know, but there is something fishy going on out there. Somebody told me there was a song being written about a Jewish boy in Vilna. Now, I'm not aware that I told anybody the story who writes music, or etc. So there must be somebody else telling the story. Three months later, I got a note from her saying she found him. That Soviet officer is now a rabbi, a Chabad rabbi in Detroit. And so I got on a plane. I went to see him. I remember his family. His family said to me, thank you. We never knew whether he made up the story. <laughs> Because it was a nice story. So, I, it, so he was telling the story, and he was telling it, I guess, in a Chabad crowd, and then somebody wrote the song. Um, and so that, that's the story. And his grandson lives two blocks away from us now. So it's Rabbi Goldman is his name. Yeah, so it's a church. And my second cousin's <laughs> husband is now one of the chazanim that sings it. So we come home. <laughs> Thank you very much.